0: You know, the, the series itself, generosity, the overarching series, six-part series, we, um, we, the way we envisioned it was the, the front three messages uh, I was going to be teaching on. And my, my particular desire uh, was to take the larger theme of generosity and gratitude and really narrow it down <coughs> to the idea of Christian giving. It was something I really wanted to talk about. And it's part of the reason why I selected the passage that we looked at last week. We'll be looking at this week and the week ahead. Because it was in my heart to be, you know, I I think to create a bridge to talk about giving in relation to its blessing and its opportunity, particularly as it pertained to giving within our church community. And I want to be upfront about that. I don't want to be ambiguous in any way. Um, My purpose is essentially twofold, and I'll just lay it out. One is to encourage those who are followers of Jesus and committed to this as their home church to continue to be faithful in your giving, especially if it's in relation to tithes and offerings, to continue to, to exercise that because it makes a huge difference for God, for the people that we're trying to help and reach for Jesus, and it makes a huge difference. This is my deep conviction for ourselves and our own life with God. So I, don't, I see this as actually connected to our wholeness and well-being. Secondly, it's my desire to and again, I want to say it on the front end, to, to lovingly challenge other followers of Jesus who either don't know about, you know, Christian giving or and what the Bible teaches about it, has to say about it, or have some idea of it but have chosen not to make it a priority in, in our Christian life. And I guess what I'm not trying to do, and I, need to, I think I need to make this equally as clear, what I'm not trying to do is get anybody who is not yet a follower uh, of Jesus, not made a commitment, and I know there are some of us who are right there, you're just beginning to explore this. I'm not I'm not interested in anybody who's not, not a, a made that leap yet, um, decision yet, uh, or even if you're a guest here, or a visitor, or a friend, or whatever, and you, you have no connection directly to our church. I'm not trying to get anybody to give any money to our church. That's not my motive. But I, I do have a sincere motive, and there are certain principles that I do want to explore. And I think they're fantastic principles that are for all of us. And that's true whether we're, I'm mean, going to just kind of mention three different places. I think the principles we're going to look at are true, <coughs> whether we're a, how do I say this, <coughs> committed follower of Jesus, uh, a, a, a nominal believer, uh, or an inquiring seeker. And when I say committed believer, I do not mean like perfect, pers- perfect follower of Jesus, I don't, I don't mean that there aren't struggles. If anybody who's serious about following Jesus is going to realize after any amount of honest time that we have areas in our lives that we're going to need the Lord's help in, that actually we don't even have our own capacity and our own strength to, to even honor Him the way we, we feel we should. I mean, we need grace. So, but we are wrestling. We're sincere. We're authentic. We're honest. We have a desire. Even if it goes against the grain of culture, there's a sincerity about our faith that characterizes how we build our lives. And it's part of the reason why we come to the Lord's house like Jesus modeled. It's part of the reason why we are giving attention and room to him in our lives, because we, we have committed ourselves in our beliefs. In other words, we have doubted our doubts and believed our beliefs, what we talked about. But you said, well, what's that other category? Did you mention, like, committed believers? Nom- no, what's a nominal believer? Now, a nominal believer, Now, a nominal, you know what nominal means? Be nice to me, okay? <laughs> nominal means in name only or in a small amount. So imagine we come to church and we have our greeting time. And it says, hey, instead of saying our names and introducing, say, you just, told, you know, just kind of introduce yourself and then mention whether you're a committed Christian, committed believer, or you're a nominal believer. Oh, how are you doing here? Yeah, I'm a nominal believer. What do you mean? I mean, it's a name only, just a small amount. But I'm, it's like really, yeah, yeah, and I'm telling you the really cool thing about being a nominal believer is man, you don't have to serve. You don't give anything. You only show up when you want to, that's if you're interested. And the other thing about it is, which is, I'm telling you, it's the way to go. The other way about it is, you go to heaven and it doesn't have to affect your life at all. Like you don't even worry about it the rest of the week. I'm telling you, nominal's the way to go, nominal believer. The thing is, Jesus said he wants our heart even more than our sacrifice. One of the things he said, he quoted from Isaiah. He said, you guys, you, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Mm. I mean, before the Lord ever wants anything from us, he wants our heart. He wants, he wants us to engage his love. Because at the end of the day, without that, it's just a a religious life insurance. I'm covering my bases. I got it sealed on that end too. <laughs> right? I'm I'm I, I'm semi jesting. I'm I'm contending that we. We commit ourselves to integrating our faith and taking seriously this life with Jesus. That we do not let ourselves simply be a nominal Christian, a a nominal believer in Jesus. That we, we contend for something better than that because God created us for something far more than that. And that to do that is to reduce its meaning to almost something that has no value. And it will not affect anyone for good, not for God. Okay, now the test now let's get into the teaching. Okay. Last week we talked about this. We talked about how, let me reset here, okay? Paul was trying to get the Corinthian church to contribute to a fund. That he was raising for the beleaguered church in Jerusalem. We'll put the map up just so everybody can kind of see what we're talking about geographically. I know it's helpful sometimes just to remember Jerusalem, still in the world. I always talk about this center of the world. I mean, it is in the news all the time. That whole region there is all the time. But the other area, that area that you can see the colors, that's Greece. Uh, The early church was planted in in the Gentile world in Greece, we call it Asia Minor, Turkey. In, In the southern part of Greece, Corinth was a prosperous church. They were blessed. They were port city, all kinds of just material blessing. The churches in the north, you can see them, Berea, Philippi, Thessalonica. Two of those are names of epistles in the New Testament. Philippi, Philippians, Thessalonica, Thessalonians. They were, they were the churches of Macedonia that Paul will refer to. They were not well off. They were actually poor. The word used, we talked about it last week, bathos in the Greek, the, rock bottom poverty, they were poor. And Paul, they were so poor that Paul actually, when he initially was trying to create this fund to help the church in Jerusalem who had been the mother church, right? was, Jerusalem was predominantly Jewish, almost exclusively Jewish believers in Jesus, Yeshua. Whereas the other churches in Greece were mixed churches, predominantly Gentile. And they had been, come into existence because the Jerusalem church had sent Paul and a team to spread the message of Jesus and now now, years have passed. Jerusalem's really suffering. They're under persecution. Economy's very bad. And Paul says, you know what would be a great expression of unity and generosity is if the churches would rally together, all of those who were affected because of what Jerusalem had done years ago, um, if we would all rally together and we can create a fund to help, uh, help some of their, their, the pressure they're under. And so he begins to appeal to the churches. And his primary appeal goes to the more prosperous churches. Corinth is one of them. He doesn't appeal as much to the churches in the, in the north, in the Macedonia area, because he knows how poor they are. And part of his desire is not to add, like, he's not trying to guilt them into giving more than he feels like they can. That sets the table for what we looked at in, in the eighth chapter. And you can, you can even see in your handout there that in 2 Corinthians 8. Now, what I've done, instead of having us relook at the passage from uh, a more traditional translation, I decided to approach what we read last week from a different translation, at least the opening piece, uh, from the message translation, which is a, a lot more expansive. is very gritty. It's, it, it may not always be as precise, but it characterizes certain things about the passage, again, that we explored last week in depth. And I wanted to read it through. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians about the fund. And what, notice what he's doing. He's going to, because they have, here's the deal. They had started to give, but then they kind of started dragging their feet and weren't really following through. And Paul was a little bit frustrated with them. You can hear it. And so he refers to the fact that, were you guys aware that the churches up in the north who have nothing have been amazingly generous? Well, it seems like for whatever the reason, you who have so much are having a hard time responding. I don't understand. This is what he says. Let's read it through. Now, friends, I want to report on the surprising and generous ways in which God is working in the churches in Macedonia province. Fierce troubles came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. Look at this. The trial exposed their true colors. That's what trials do. Th- then this phrase that is almost paradoxical. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's incongruous. He says, they were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. Incredibly happy, though desperately Lee poor. How does that work? Incongruous. He's writing to these followers of Jesus who are much more well-off. And very urbane. Cosmopolitan. And he says the pressure that they were under actually triggered something totally unexpected. I'm mean, going to be honest with you, he says. It... it, it even though they were so <laughs> in such dire straits, it, it triggered something totally unexpected, an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. Now, I'm telling you, I was there, he says. I saw it for myself. They gave offerings of whatever they could. In fact, they gave far more than they could afford, just to be honest, pleading for the privilege of helping out the relief of poor Christians, the ones in Jerusalem. And this was totally spontaneous, entirely their own idea. And you know what else it did? It caught us completely off guard. I mean, we weren't even prepared for it. What explains it was that they had first given themselves unreservedly to God and then to us. That's the truth. The other giving simply flowed out of the purposes of God working in their lives. What he was saying was they gave their heart to the Lord and they just responded. That's all. And it caught us off guard because honestly, we didn't want them to give. We didn't ask them to give. If anything, we were trying to kind of shield them from feeling like they were obligated to give. We wanted you to give, but not necessarily them to give. And they're the ones that ended up volunteering and basically said to us, do not leave us out of this blessing. We believe in what you're doing. We want to get behind what you're doing. Please don't use our poverty as an excuse to cut us off from the blessing of giving. That's what he said. What? He says, so that's what, they, that's what promised us to ask Titus to bring. Titus was a member of his key member of his team. Prompted us to ask Titus to bring the relief offering to your attention. We wanted to bring it up to you so that you would, you who so that what was so well begun could be finished up. You then look what he says at the bottom of there. You do so well in so many things. You're an amazing church. You trust God, you're articulate, you're insightful, you you're passionate, you love us. Now, could could you do this one thing? Could you do your best in this area too? I mean you're can you also be generous? So that's what he's getting at, right? Now, pick right back up. This is other, other parallel paragraph, 2 Corinthians 8th verse. Just stay, walk with me, okay, you guys? I'm not commanding you. Now, Paul says this. I'm not commanding you to do this, I'm, but I am. Te- what I am doing, I'm, I could, I'm your spiritual father. I planted this church. You remember that. He says, but I'm not saying you have to do this. I am, I am asking you to do it. I'm testing you at some level about the genuineness of your faith and your love by comparing it to the eagerness of the other churches. I think you need to hear that. Now you know, and then watch what he does. It's like, it would seem as if Paul saying, you're an amazing church. You're very gifted. Very blessed. Very blessed. Follow through and be, ble- be a blessing. One, two, and just in case you haven't noticed it, as an extra motivation, the churches who have so much less than you up north, man, they've already finished, they've already gave. But you would think, okay, that's enough. You know, just follow through. Paul doesn't stop. He then plays one more card. He anchors his contending love, love and argument towards them in a way, and his exhortation, his encouragement. He anchors it with one more thing. He says, and by the way, do I need to remind you about something? I think I should. Look what he says. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Watch how he's pointing the ultimate example of graciousness and sacrificial giving. He says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich... Yet for your sakes, he became poor, so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. Oh man, I love this verse. Uh, (laughs) It's like Paul saying, I need to remind you that everything we have in God, in Christ, from God, in Christ, is a result of his astonishing graciousness towards us. I need to bring that up. I need to remind you of his astonishing generosity. Never forget that the Lord was rich, that he came from above, that God with us, laid aside his glory, like if you read about it in Philippians 2, that he laid aside his glory, the privilege that was due him, the deity that was his, he laid it aside, at some level took upon him the very nature, the, the, the accoutrements of his deity he lays aside and takes upon him the very nature of the creatures he came to save. He clothes himself in the comparative, comparative poverty of humanity. That's what Paul says. And oh, do you see that phrase, became poor? That phrase, you know what you can almost translate that as? He beggared himself. That is compared to who he was and and where he came from. He was like a beggar. That's not even referring to the condition of his birth, the modesty in which he lived. He owned nothing. It doesn't refer to how he dies, which is utterly shameful, naked, on criminal hill, totally Totally like taken advantage of. Paul saying he became poor so that we, through his poverty, he meeting us at our level, we might give, be given the enormous spiritual wealth that only he could give, that God did for us we could never do for ourselves. That we couldn't get to him. He came to us, that God gave his life for us. He pays it all, right? So that we might have that life. I mean, that's the. Do you know what this, this verse is? You could call this ninth verse the center of the gospel and not be exaggerating. But Paul doesn't stop. He says this, you know, again, based on who you are, based on the examples of the churches up north who have so much less, based on the extravagant generosity of Jesus, here is my advice. Verse 10, it would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Please, come on. Last year, you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness that you showed in the beginning be matched now. Come on, by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. In other words, finish what you started. Come on. Whatever you give is acceptable. Listen, if you do it eagerly. And give according to what you have. Look at that verse 12. And... and not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean that your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Give what you can in relation to what you have. Listen, I'm not expecting you to give what you don't have. I'm just asking you to do your part as your brothers and sisters did in Macedonia and the north did. I just, that's all I want. Really, please, right now, look. And then he says, verse 14, right now you have plenty, you have a lot, you're blessed. You can help those who are in need. Later, they, maybe they will have plenty and can help and share when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. He looks what he's basically saying. He's saying, right now, you're blessed, okay? Who knows? Maybe later on, you'll need some help. And I would expect nothing less from them if you were in the need and had the resources spare. And then, so you go, okay, that makes sense. Paul, you start, you say, this is the kind of church you are. Live up to who I think you are. Then you, you say, okay, follow the example of the churches in the north who have so much less and gave. Then you say, oh, and don't forget the extravagant example of Jesus. And then you say, you know, right here, right, there it is. You know, it's just the right thing to do. And then Paul does one more thing. He then anchors it back in time. And not all of us will know this, but many of us will. But in the Older Testament, In the book of Exodus, there's this moment where Israel has just been delivered out of Egypt under under the leadership of Moses, this nation of freed slaves, for the first time in generations, out of Egypt, on their way to the Promised Land. They're in the wilderness, they're wandering, they get to this place where they have no food. It looks like they might die. God says, I'm going to provide. He gives, he gives something to them. It's called manna. It's, it was like a seed grain that they could make into a bread. And one of the things that happened there is he said, and by the way, um, this is how you should do it. Those of you who are stronger and more physically able, make sure that you gather more than you need so that you can help out those who are sick and those who are older who couldn't do it on their own. And that says, that's why he says what he says. So he dro- look at that 15, this is the last verse. He says, as the scriptures say, this is what he's talking about. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over. And those who gathered only a little had enough. What he was trying to remind them of is, oh, by the way, you remember what happened with Israel and the church in the Older Testament when it came to God's provision? You remember what happened, how they all worked together? He says, oh, and by the way, this would, they would have understood this too. Do you realize that when the manna, one of the things God did was he said, when you get that food, just remember this, no matter how much you get the next day, whatever's left over will be rotten. So there's no need hoarding it. It won't last anyway. Be a blessing with what cannot last anyway. Do you see it? Let it speak. What is there for us? A lot. Here it is. I just, these are just things I was wrestling with. I'll put them up. Take it as we want. Here's one thing I want us to consider just in the couple of minutes we have left, that a willing obedience, you guys, is always better than an obligated one. Okay, listen, there are some things we should do not because um, we have to, but because we get to. Paul is reminding them of, of what they should give. He's giving them examples. I just laid them out for you. One, two, three, four, five, finishing up with the, the provision of working together. He's, he's just giving them examples. He's a, but he, you know what he's doing? He's appealing to them to act on their own volition. I'm not going to make you do it. You've got to choose to do it. It's like he's saying, love that is forced isn't really love. you got to decide. you are going to jump in here. And, and, then, and, then, and again, in verse 10, he goes out of his way to point out that the, the contrib- contribution to the relief fund is not something they are required to do, but he is asking them to do it. It's, it's an overt appeal. By the way, many of us get a lot of, if you're like me, uh, you get different kind of newsletters, e-letters now, from a wide variety of ministries or uh, nonprofit profit organizations, uh, asking, many of whom are doing great work. And especially once you've given, you, you can get, keep getting the letters, and they're asking for financial support, and sometimes it's hard to know um, what we're supposed to give to in addition to our own local church uh, that family that we belong to, right? And as I mentioned last week, and I'm not going to go over this in depth, but I was taught as a boy, just as a beginning, when I was just a boy, but I was taught in Sunday school and by my grandfather that this is how you are to live your life, son, and, and he taught me that, you know, for every dime you give a penny. And so when I had my first paper out, I tithed. I gave a tenth of my money. I did it. And I've been doing it my whole life on the basis of Malachi 3 in the Old Testament and what Jesus taught us in Matthew 23, 23, and on the basis of what Paul talked about, bringing our first fruits to the Lord's house. Now, I, I say that because um, uh, well, now, a lot of times we have our giving time, um, and I understood that that my first responsibility was to give t- to my home church, but at the, at the a lot now we have a, we have a very modest giving time in our church that 's our tradition uh, now more and more people are giving in and this is something that's just a trend in the culture period giving online directly and a lot of us are doing that a lot of you are doing using the a mobile phone app now is becoming a real way of just that 's the way that we give so it 's kind of in this little transition period but The offering time at the end of service is an interesting time because I still remember back. Now, not all of us will. This is going to relate to this, but when I was a teenager, um, as a youth pastor, I I was hanging out with my grandfather. He was in the late '60s, and in my early 20s, and we would go to the. The tradition he came from and what I was raised in was very different than this tradition that we have have here. We're a non-denominational kind of Christian church built around a a San Francisco expression, missional. That's what we do. We try to represent his heart as part of his, his, his witnesses with many other churches in this city. We try to create a safe place to bring friends and family members to at least talk about the Lord and hear things. At the same time, equipping us for our everyday life with God so that we can live out our faith, not just be that nominal Christian believer. I said all that. That I grew up in a different tradition. It was, it was what would be called Pentecostal. Not, not everyone would know what that means necessarily, but it's highly emotive. And um, it's still part of who I am, to be honest. And one of the things that happened was my, I would go with my grandfather to these camps. And I would hear, and the only thing I can re- kind of equate it with is if you've ever seen like, these tent revival camps, sometimes you'll see them from days gone by, in you know, the early days of Billy Graham and stuff. But I would go to these, these camps and hear these people preach. and. One of the things I was struck by, even early on, is I couldn't get over how long they would take with the offerings, man. I I was shocked. I'm not joking. There'd be some times where what almost equals our entire service would just be for the offering. Long, very long. And I remember one time I was with my grandfather. See, my grandfather was old school. He had this principle. He said, Terry, whenever you go to a church, wherever you go to a camp, anything you go to, anything that represents the Lord, he goes, whenever there's an offering time, you give. So he told me. So he taught me. Now, and he modeled it, right? He did it. Okay, so I was sitting there, and I'm listening to this guy go on and on and on. And I mean, he's like doing backflips, and almost like an auction. It was almost like an auction. And I'm listening to him and I go, grandson, this is like killing me. <laughs> and so then finally, the off the plate gets passed. And I'm watching my grandfather. You know, I am saying, What are you gonna do? I mean, I didn't say it, I was just kind of watching. And he pulls out and he goes, and he's putting this in, and he turns to me. The only way he could say, the only way I could say is he had this kind of sense of humor. He threw it in and he goes, I was gonna give more. But the guy talked me into giving less, right? <laughs> it's like, gross, man, that was so good. All right? That's so good. And it, it reminded me of something Mark Twain was said to have said when he was dismayed by the like, long appeal for the offering. He said not only did he, like my grandfather, say, you know what, um, I'm not going to give what he planned to give. But Twain said, the guy wore me down so much that when the offering plate went by, not only did I not give what I was planning to give, I decided I'd take some money out of there because he owed me for what he put me through, right? Don't get any ideas, all right? Don't get any ideas. All right, number two here. We'll flash it up real quick. There are going to be times we're going to be challenged to expand our trust base and our commitment to Jesus. The church at Corinth, man, they were really good. We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses, Anybody who's sincerely trying to follow Jesus will find that there are areas in our lives that, for some of us, we really struggle with, but then there are other areas we do really, they come easy to us. We're not all the same. It's fascinating because the Corinthian church, they did some things really well, a lot of things. But Paul was saying, but you guys have a weakness. For some reason, you you really struggle with this generosity, this financial generosity in, in your commitment to the Lord. And he goes, I don't understand, but he goes, I mean, I, what he was pointing out was the churches who have far less than you, have they, the people that are there, they have such, they have such liberty here. And it's a reminder that there are some times where God will bring us into seasons where he's calling us to upgrade our life with him. I, I tell my kids, they're not kids anymore. There's always my kids, but now they're adults. So I have said to them at all different times, I just had this conversation with one of them. I said, you know what, try, I said, try something to, I think one of the keys here, what the Lord's trying to do is He's trying to get you to address your weakness. Try to manage your weakness so that you can soar with your strength. Manage your, you've got gifts. Let's manage these weak zones and, and try to get them into a place of stability so that we can soar with the things that God's given us that come easy. I think that sometimes God wants us to address things in our lives. Last thing, number three, we can never, here it is. I'll I'll be honest, that's what my grandfather used. Okay, I know I'm quoting him a ton right now. But 30 years later, plus. But he told me, Terry, don't ever forget. You can never outgive God, ever. Don't you ever forget that. That's what Paul was telling the church. Corinth, right? Do you understand what Jesus did? you what we believe for God so loved this world that he what he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish death would not be the final word but would have the gift of everlasting eternal the overflowing the undying life of Jesus now and yet to come that would be our promise and our heritage jesus says in light of that reality do not get consumed in this life only remember Everything we give away, listen to me, in his name, I need to hear it too, in his name is not lost. But everything hoarded here out of selfish means, even when it's legitimate, is not going to be carried ahead. It's what we do in, in Christ's name that is sent ahead and in our love for him. So it's important, you guys, that we, we listen, we, we doubt our doubts and we believe our beliefs. That is, we act as people construct our life in such a way that it reflects what we say we believe about what Jesus taught us, about what really means something in life. To disconnect from that, and that's what sometimes can happen, is to miss the point. Let us doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. Let's pray. All right, Lord, I thank you because of the time we've been able to share. I ask that this word would would grow in our hearts. And I don't know whatever it is you want to say, and you know you know what you want to say to us. We all have our weak areas. We all have areas you're trying to challenge us in. You also have areas in our lives you're actually trying to break us out into. And a lot of times it's our own smallness that's holding us back, our, our lack of our doubt, our unbelief in you. It's really crunching your ability to, to to break us into new things. Sometimes it's the obedience in one area that actually sets the table for the breakthrough in another area. It's how it works. The Corinthian church was a responsive church. And yet in this area, they were struggling to be responsive. May you help us, Lord, to respond to the promptings of your spirit. Give us an increased sense of faith so that we may, as we've been praying and talking about, doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. This is what I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.